Well, good morning, and uh, let me say to all the mothers out here also, happy Mother's Day. It's one of my favorite days of the year and a very special day. You know, 600 college students were, were asked, what is the most beautiful word in the English language? And out of those 600 students, 422 wrote mother. I don't know what the others were thinking, but they, <laughs> uh, growing up, you know, growing up, we, we didn't have any channels. Y'all, any of y'all remember that? And, and we didn't have all these commercials, so everybody knew uh, the stars of commercials like Mikey. We've talked about Mikey before because Mikey would eat anything. But there was this commercial that came out in the 70s, late 70s, all the way through the 80s, and it was the time I was a kid. Um, and basically, it was, it was always some, um, some woman, some lady, then house that just needed some relief from the stress of life, uh, whatever that stress was, and she would just cry out, Calgon, take me away. Y'all remember that one? It's the traffic. It's the boss, it's the babies, it's the dogs. Calgon, please take me away. And then the tagline, lose yourself in luxury. Now, I just want to say this. Why did you bring it up, Scott? Because I'm sure um, some of you remember that commercial, but just take it from a kid's perspective. And you're sitting there watching that commercial and you're going, do I do that to my mom? Now that I'm older, I recognize, yes, I did. I read by the time a child reaches the age of 18, a mother has had to handle some extra 18,000 hours of child-generated work. In fact, women who never have children enjoy the equivalent of an extra three months a year of leisure time. I don't know if that last part's true, but I just wanted to say that's what somebody wrote. We live in a, a strange time, don't we? Uh, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary in 2024. We'll celebrate 100 years from the time that Woodrow Wilson declared with Congress that there would be a day set aside in the United States of America whereby we would honor mothers. In fact, here's what the proclamation was. Mother's Day would be a public expression of love and reverence for the mothers of our country. Not even a hundred years, and we have a nation that's striking against Mother's Day, protesting against Mother's Day. Now, I don't want you to go there with me today because I'm not going to D.C. or to SCOTUS. I'm going to the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, would you find the last book in your New Testament? And let's look at Revelation. Because indeed, these are strange days we live in. But John lived in some very interesting days, to say the least. By the time John writes the book of Revelation, he's likely the only apostle left alive. He's mourned the death of many of his friends and colleagues in ministry. He is experiencing himself trials and tribulations. The church of Jesus Christ is facing persecution, and that persecution is going to mount. 
Christians are going to face torturous deaths only because they name Jesus as their Lord. They're going to be made sport of. They're going to be dipped in pitch and lit on fire to light gardens. They're going to be put before animals. Some of them are going to be tied between horses and drug apart, torn limb from limb. Some of them are going to be, be fed to lions, and that's going to be more of a merciful death. And so to say that John lived in strange times would be really an understatement. The persecution, the difficulty, and the tribulations were rough. And if John could find out from the Lord that even in those tribulations, he is more than a conqueror, and all those who are in the church can live victoriously above the circumstances then I think whatever we're facing today, whatever it is that you're in front of today, you can face with victory. And that's what I want you to see in Revelation chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, uh, you've stood for singing. Would you mind standing for Scripture? And let's read beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and in patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the fire. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write these things, the things that you have seen, those things that are, those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the reading of God's Word. Thank you so much. You, you may be seated. John was living in a difficult day and part of the reason was because of his testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an unbelievable persecution that he was going under, and under this particular persecution, he was on an island away from all that he loved, all the people that he cared for, and the church that he shepherded. 
He was likely, likely working in mines under these harsh conditions. Even as an older man, I, I believe John's probably getting close to 90, maybe over 90 at this point. He lived a long life just as Jesus intended him to do in order that he might bring us this revelation from Jesus Christ. What he tells us here is that our Lord Jesus is with us and we're in him. These two, two, two realities uh, enable us under tribulation. We need to see this. The book of Revelation is a very practical book. Just say practical. Because there's a lot in Revelation that we may not really quite grip or grab. Uh, there's lions, there's, there's dragons, there, there's trumpets and there's vials and bowls and judgment and all types of imagery and revelation that we'll come to and we'll try to wonder what that is and then try to make our way through it to understand these are symbols of realities. But Revelation is a very practical book. And what John's telling us is that when we find ourselves in tribulation, we can find that Jesus is enough to enable us to overcome it. And I want us to see that this morning because in Jesus, there are present comforts in tribulation. There are three comforts here that we read. These are his voice, his vision, and his victory. Let's look at number one. Jesus speaks in tribulation. Jesus speaks in tribulation. Now, when I say the word tribulation and you hear the word revelation, you might ask yourself the question, is this the great tribulation I've heard about? There's coming a great tribulation period. I, I believe here that John's not talking about the tribulation that's coming but he's talking about tribulations, tribulations. We are all going to go through different trials and troubles. We are undergoing tribulation. And John puts it this way, I'm your partner in tribulation and the kingdom. So here, write this down. Tribulation, tribulation for us is to be expected. Paul, uh, John says here, I'm your partner in suffering. I'm your partner in suffering. In this sense, the entire church was undergoing suffering. He's saying to them, this is to be expected. Now, John would have remembered the words of Jesus. In John 16 and verse 33, Jesus said, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. Good, I want peace from God. But peace isn't the absence of trouble. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Acts chapter 14, the apostle Paul was drug out of a city. He was stoned and we believe there actually died and was resurrected. And after being resurrected back to life, Paul comes and speaks to the church. In verse 22, he says, I'm strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but it's through many dangers, toils, and snares. Don't be surprised then by tribulation. Mark that down. Mark that down. Don't be surprised when you go through difficult times. He says, we're partners and in patient endurance. This is just this. We are going to have to bear under these tribulations. These are not passing, but they are lasting. These are tribulations that we're going to have to bear under because they're lasting. Now, when I was younger, I ran, but I didn't want to run long distance. I just wanted to run fast and quit early. The Christian life's not like that. 
And there are some who think, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start out quick for the Lord. I'm going to get out of the blocks. But then come to realize the Christian life is not easy. And if anyone ever told you, get saved because life will get better, they lied to you. It gets more difficult. And Paul, uh, excuse me, I keep saying Paul, John, John here is telling us to bear up underneath these things. Be an overcomer by bearing up underneath them. He found himself in trouble, by the way, for the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in verse 10, he finds himself in the spirit on the Lord's day because of his worship. Notice verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, whenever you read that the voice of the Lord comes like a trumpet, recognize that he's announcing something. The Lord's announcing something very important. And oftentimes it's judgment. Oftentimes it's judgment which is going to be, for the most part, the case of the book of Revelation. He's going to announce the Lord Jesus Christ is judgment. Verse 11, what does he say? Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and to Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and lastly, Laodicea. Now, this is the postal circuit of the day. Look at the order of these churches. It would have been the order of the map. It would have been the order in which the postal worker of that day would have made his journey from one city to the next. There are seven here, which we will get to numbers later, the numbers that are listed in the book of Revelation, but seven is the number of perfection. So this is not only to be sent to these seven real churches, but to us today, the entire church. The Lord Jesus is going to give John that purpose again in verse 19. Look in verse 19, because there it says, Write, therefore, the things you have seen and the things that are, and those things which are to take place. This is the key, by the way. I think if you would just circle verse 19 and say, um, this is a key, and write maybe a key, or if you're really good as an artist, maybe, maybe write it, just kind of draw a key next to verse 19, because 19 is really helpful in understanding the book of Revelation, because John writes what he has seen, what he has seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place. And so is Revelation about the future? Certainly is, but it's also about John's present. We have to understand what's going on in the current situation when John is writing in order to understand the book of Revelation. What Jesus does here is turns John to his word. John tunes his ears to hear Jesus in a difficult time. And then he turns his eyes to Jesus. That's the second thing I want to see. Look in verse 12. The vision of Jesus is comforting in tribulation. It's the voice of Jesus that comes in tribulation to bring encouragement, but it's comforting in tribulation. Look with me in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw the seven lampstands, and in the midst of of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. I was speaking to someone just a couple of weeks ago who uh, has two people in his church that have appeared on a television show called The Voice. I've never seen The Voice, but uh, on upon reading The Voice, I, I couldn't help but think about The Voice when I read this passage. The Voice is where Blind auditions are made in front of coaches who judge solely on a voice. And if the voice impresses them enough, their chair turned around to put their eyes upon the one who's actually singing. 
Now imagine that. You, you sing so well that someone's got to see who is this that is singing. Well, in this sense, John is listening to a voice as if his back is to it, but he hears the voice. He has to turn and see who it is that's speaking. And when he does, he sees the glorified, risen Jesus Christ. Where is he? He's among the lampstands. Well, John tells us in verse 20, the lampstands are the churches. Where's Jesus? He is standing with his church. Church, that's where Jesus was. That's where Jesus is. He is standing with his church. You've not read the news, have you? Because there'd be more amens when I said, he is standing with the church. It doesn't matter who stands against the church, as long as we know Jesus is standing with the church. He's standing with the church among these lampstands, and he's doing the work of the great high priest that we read about in Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, the high priest is lighting lamps and making sure there's oil so that there's light on the menorah. In the same way, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is burning brightly among his churches in order to allow them as well to do their work of burning brightly in a dark world. Is John living in a dark world? all more dark than we could ever imagine at this point. And yet at the same time, he sees the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ lighting the lamp, the light of the world himself lighting the lamp in the churches, doing the work among his churches. Verse 13 gives the description of Jesus. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Notice this. This is purity. This is purity. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Mark this. Pure and penetrating. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, pure and perpetual. We bear up underneath tribulation, and we're not to stop. This is a marathon for us till we finish. And we can do it because the one who is among us has feet that never stop. Jesus is not passive today, but active among his church and with his people. And in his right hands, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now notice this description. John says he's like the Son of Man, like the Son of Man. Now, he draws that description from another prophet by the name of Daniel, who in Daniel chapter 7 reveals the twofold office and activity, both, of the Messiah. And Daniel refers to the Messiah as both the Son of Man, human, and also the ancient of days, always, never-ending, infinite, always been here. Daniel chapter 7, we'll just listen for this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, Daniel says, Daniel, this is Daniel. I looked, thrown to a place, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. Sound familiar? 
The hair of his head were as pure as wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Verse 13, and I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Here you have God the Father, you have the Lord Jesus Christ presented, and now we come all the way back to Revelation realizing that what? That what John saw was Jesus the one who is absolutely the Son of Man and also God in every way, the ancient of days. By the way, every description here of Jesus in John's Revelation, in Revelation 1, comes from Old Testament imagery. It does. How important is it to know the Old Testament? For instance, the golden sash from Exodus 28, the eyes of fire from Daniel chapter 10, the, the voice like waters from Ezekiel chapter 3, the right hand laid on John from Isaiah 41.10. This, this description of Jesus, by the way, is not what Jesus actually looks like. Right, when we see Jesus, this is not what he's going to actually look like in every way. It is who Jesus actually is is. No wonder, verse 17, no wonder when I saw him, John said, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is all John looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, giving the same description as is given of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, including in Daniel chapter 10, where when Daniel saw Jesus the Messiah, he also fell down. And then here's what happened. The Messiah came to Daniel in the Old Testament and said, fear not, Daniel, fear not. This would have brought John back, by the way. Um, this would have brought John back. It would have brought him back to a moment where he was on a mountain with Peter and here, there they were watching as Jesus Christ is transfigured into a glorious and then John and Peter are watching this, and there here is Jesus speaking with, with two of the Old Testament patriarchs. Peter says something like this, it's good that we are here, we should build some, some tabernacles and stay here. And then G Jesus there being glorified is then honored by the Father. And God said to the disciples, this is my son whom I'm well pleased Listen to him. And when that happened, the disciples fell on their faces and they were terrified. So this is not the first time John's heard the voice of the Lord. This is not the first time that he fell on his face and was terrified and would take him back to when that happened, how that Jesus Christ came and touched him and said, rise and have no fear. So when you come to verse 17 and you see John on his face before the Lord Jesus Christ, how comforting was it that then Jesus again touches John with his right hand and says, fear not, fear not. This is Jesus. 
This is the type of Jesus that actually brings comfort to us when we're in trouble, a trial, a tribulation. This is not simply the warm, cuddly, westernized, Americanized, soft Jesus that's our, our buddy, a warm hug on a cold winter morning. This is the glorified Lord Jesus Christ who is terrifying to look upon, yet at the same time takes his right hand, which is the hand of strength, and says, fear not. I'm with you. I'm with you. This is the type of Jesus we need, y'all. This is the type of Jesus we need. In an article called The Grand Inquisitor by Doskospi, there's a, there's a moment in this article in which he uh, unravels the, the, the misnomer that we have a, a therapeutic Jesus who's just come to meet our felt needs and to make us more comfortable on earth. How he does this is to tell the story of a cardinal by the name of Seville who encounters Jesus who has actually returned to earth in this fiction. Jesus is preaching the gospel and then is arrested and put into prison because he's preaching the gospel. Seville comes to meet Jesus. He's the inquisitor and he's interrogating Jesus. And he says to Jesus this, he says, it's decided that we have come to meet man's human cravings rather than calling men to repentance. It has been decided in the church to bend the message to felt needs rather than calling forth the high, holy, and difficult freedom of faith and working through love. Then he would basically say to Jesus, we have corrected your work. The fiction basically says that we have now a biblical example that's deemed for weak souls and the church has made it more easy for people to live. Isn't this the contemporary consumeristic gospel that's being perpetuated by our own flesh and by fleshly preachers and churches and pulpits? The current therapeutic gospel and the therapeutic gospel of Jesus, according to David Paulison, addresses these issues. We want to be loved, he says. I want to feel loved for who I am, to be pitied for what I've gone through, to feel in, intimately understood, to be accepted unconditionally. I want to experience a sense of personal significance and meaningfulness to successful, be successful in my career and to know life really matters and I have an impact. I want to gain self-esteem to affirm that I'm okay to be able to assert my opinions and desires. I want to be entertained to feel pleasure in the endless stream of performances that delight my eyes and tickle my ears. I want a sense of adventure, excitement, action, and passion so that experiencing life is thrilling and moving. This is what Paulison says that the therapeutic gospel is trying to address. But what happens when you find yourself on an island in tribulation? What happens when you find yourself in a situation where no amount of soft-pedaled gospel can really address your serious tribulation. You need a Jesus who is conquered, who is conquering, and who is willing to put his right hand on you and say, fear not. 
What kind of Jesus do you need? What Christ will be people's Christ, Paulus and I ask? Will it be the Christ at of the messages of the felt need or the Christ who turns the world upside down and makes all things new? We need a glorified Christ. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the one who was dead and is alive. Now, we need a communicating Christ, and we need a comforting Christ, and we need a caring Christ, and he's, he's all of that. He's all of that, but he is far more than that. Look at this. He's standing, if you will, among the lampstands. My version says in the midst. The Greek actually says in the middle. Why would he be in the middle? Why would he be in the middle? Here's why. He is to be preeminent. We don't just, as a church, shine a light of Jesus. We're to shine the light on Jesus. We're not simply just to be lights for Jesus, but to point people to Jesus. Why? He's to be preeminent. Therefore, we have to tune our ears and turn our eyes to know who Jesus really is so that, thirdly, we can trust in the victory that Jesus brings. Verse 17, John said this, I saw him, I felt his feet is dead. He put his right hand on me and he said, fear not, I am the first and the last. He put his right hand on me. Now, let's you think about this for a moment because John just told us before this that there was something in Jesus's hand. There were seven stars and we're told that seven stars are in the hand of Jesus. So if you'll just go with me and just imagine right now, you're looking at this image of this Jesus with burnished feet, burning eyes, and blazingly white hair. And in his hand are seven stars, which are representative of all the church. So he has control of the church in his right hand. And now he lays his hand uh, on John. And I just want to ask the question, what happened to the stars? And I love this because there have been probably some thoughts in some of your minds that God don't care about me. He's got bigger things to do. I mean, Jesus got bigger fish to fry than me. At the same time, I want you to look at this passage and see how the one who has everything under his control, including the churches, has also time for one individual, John, to put his hand on him while not losing control of everything that's happening in all the universe and say, I love you, do not fear. This is the powerful Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at his self-claims. Now Jesus begins to describe himself to John. So John sees him, describes him to us. Now Jesus describes himself to us. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I don't think those need to be disconnected, those two verses in verse 16 there, and the living one. This refers back to to something Jesus said in verse 8. You have your Bibles in Revelation 1. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and I am the Mega, the Lord says, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. In other words, I'm the one who's first, I'm the one who's last. I'm like the first letter of the Greek alphabet, which is the alpha, and the last letter of the Greek alphabet is the omega. Life originates from me. Life originates from me and is given to you because I am life. I am the living one, meaning this, I'm the originator of life. I give life, I give life. Hear this, church, hear this, church. This is the Lord Jesus Christ telling us today. Real life is not found and what you, you have in yourself, it is outside of yourself, 
Life is found outside of your experiences or whatever it is you're seeking to bring you fulfillment. Follow this. Life is only found in Jesus Christ. Real life is given by His grace to those who receive it from Him. Therefore, He is to be preeminent not only in the church, but preeminent in our life. He has to be first in your life. We have gospel conversations with people. I had one yesterday for a long time with a gentleman that I'm praying will come to Jesus Christ. And when those gospel conversations, we tell people that we are broken because of our sin. And you know what we do when we realize we're broken? Because everybody comes to the conclusion, man, I'm not what I ought to be, not what I want to be. So I'm going to figure out this thing. And so what do we do? We try to pursue what we think will make us whole because we're broken, right? So what is it that we pursue? And if I ask people, I'm like, what do people pursue? Because we're talking about Christ and we're talking about the church, they immediately go to deep sin. Oh, well, you know, that's sex and drugs and money and alcohol and all that stuff. Well, that's true. Sometimes people fill their lives full of their, those kinds of things to numb their con- convicted heart. But isn't it also true that when we find out that we are broken before God, we start to try to figure out maybe some good things we can do to make up for the bad so that we can fix ourselves. Like, I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing good things. I'm going to maybe work out a soup kitchen. I'm going to start giving some to charity. I'm going to start helping out the the people around me where where, where I live. I'm going to be a part of some cause. I'm going to save the forest. I'm going to say, but well, I'm going to do whatever I can because I know that life is bigger than me. And so I'm going to get outside of myself. And what does that lead to? Just further brokenness, further emptiness. Because we weren't made, we weren't made for material stuff. We weren't made for the wells. We weren't made for the owls. We weren't made for just simple causes. We weren't made for ourselves, y'all. We were made for God who made this universe for himself. And we happen to live in it. So whenever it is we begin to put anything in our life, watch this, as ultimate besides Christ, we're going to find we will be sorely disappointed. And if we think, that Jesus, and this is the, the Jesus that we come up with, this therapeutic comforting Jesus, is some avenue to get us to where we want to go. We are going to be really depressed when we find out Jesus is not a means to our ends, but he is actually the omega. He is the end. What do you mean? What are you talking about? This is why people very careful to get upset with God when they get in tribulation. Well, I didn't think it was going to be this way. Think about John. Here I am serving you. I'm witnessing for you. I'm preaching the gospel. Now I'm on an island. Now I'm arrested. Now I'm under tribulation. And Jesus would say, what? I got you. His right hand, fear not. I'm the one who's ultimate. I'm the one who's worth living for. I'm not, just, I'm not just a way to get what you really want. I'm what you really want. Are you following this? 
And so if you say, well, I want to follow Jesus so I can have a better family. I want to have Jesus so I can have a better life. I want to have Jesus so I can have a better marriage. I want to have Jesus so I have better kids and grandkids and more money. I want to have Jesus so I have better fellowship. I have more friends. I more have influence. I want Jesus for all of these things. Then you're using Jesus as a means to your ends and you're going to be really, really disappointed when you find tribulation come up in your life. You know what tribulation is? It's not God being bad or evil. It's God revealing that he is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of everything that we are to trust him with our hearts. So here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the one who is the first. I'm the last and I offer life. I was the one who was dead and is alive. This is Jesus telling John, I take that which was dead and I can make it alive evermore. That means your marriage that is dead can be resurrected and your depressed soul can be resuscitated and your wrecked life can be rescued. This is the one who says, I was dead, I'm alive. He can take that which you think has no hope, no life in it, and resurrect it, can breathe life into it and make it new. He holds the keys. And then when he says this, he's saying this, and not only that can I resurrect what is dead to life, I can take what needs to stay dead and keep it locked up in a jail. So now this, so now this. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen those things that are and those that are to take place after this. So now, John, now that you have the revelation, now that you have heard my voice, now that you have seen my vision, and now that you know my victory, write it down. There's always something to do with what we see. You know, when you come to church, uh, you may want this. You may want this. You may want in your, in your flesh, you may want, I want to be told how to just make it through Monday. Like, how can you, can, can you just help me make it through this difficult patch? But, but then it, there it is that, that we go into a moralistic, therapeutic way of Christian living that will really absolutely let us down in tribulation. We have to first go to Jesus, look to him. We have to listen to him. Then we'll know the victory we have in him and then know what to do. So let me just make some application here in the last few minutes, all right? So if, you, if, you're, if you're checking out, check back in here because here's the to-do list, all right? Because after this vision, if Jesus gave John a to-do list. Let me give you a to-do list. Number one, ready? Here, there, here it is. Know this, that John was in the spirit, was in the spirit on the Lord's day, all right? So he was not in the geographical location of his choosing. Like some of you right now are like, well, I wish I was with my mom. I wish my mom was here. I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I didn't live in this state. I wish all that. I wish I wasn't in this situation, man. I wish I wasn't in this circumstance. And you can't always choose where you are. But you can choose to be in the Spirit. To be in the Spirit means that we listen to the voice of Christ, we desire the voice of Christ, and then we make a decision to obey the voice of Christ. You can't be in the Spirit if that's not the case. We have a desire for the for the spirit, but we have to make a decision to place ourselves in the spirit. And when was this happening? On the Lord's day. Everyone say Lord's day. 
Do y'all know we refer to the first day of the week as the Lord's Day? I mean, very seldom do I call Sunday Sunday. I call it the Lord's Day. And because this is how the early church referred to as the first day, the, the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week in which Jesus rose from the dead. It's the first day of the week in which the Lord's Supper and communion was celebrated according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. First day of the week in Acts chapter 20 that, that Paul came and preached and gathered the church. And so we if we're going to listen to the voice of God, then the first day of the week is a very special day to be set aside for hearing the Lord. It is a time to power off so that we can have his power on, right? So here's what I mean by that. So many are, some of us are, are caught up in all the information of the day that, 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 that we are inundated with, with voices around us that are troubling us and drowning out the very voice that will come to us to say, don't fear. Don't fear. I mean, when we grow up, men, there, there's a song, don't let your, mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. I never liked that song when I grew up. No little boy did. We all dreamed of being cowboys and firemen wrestlers. I was going to say this, mamas, it's Mother's Day. Don't let your babies grow up to be boys. What I mean is this, don't, don't raise children that grow up to be adult boys. I'm thankful that there was a time, I'm sure I had a pacifier, I don't remember that, I was too little to remember that, I'm sure I had one. I'm glad mom took it away. There, there's a time when the pacifier of the screen and the video game and the speakers in the ear need to be taken out so that we can hear God. And I want to say this to, to, to moms and dads too because the application there is that it is helpful to understand here what what. John's learning and what we have to teach our children, and that is guard your heart. Guard and protect your children the way God protected John. What an illustration of how dependent John was on God. We have to teach our children that. They're not naturally going to be inclined to want to go to youth ministry. They're not going to be naturally inclined to want to go to Bible study. They're not going to be naturally inclined to want to come and sit under the preaching of the Word of God. That's not their natural inclination. It takes a mama. It takes a daddy. And by God's grace, if both are in the home, it takes both of them to say, no, you're going to sit here and listen to God because it's time to power off the world and tune in to heaven. And to tune your ears to Jesus and turn your eyes to Jesus. Because if our kids never learn to tune their ears to Jesus, they'll never turn the chair and turn their eyes on Jesus. And they'll never trust Jesus with their heart. This is hard work. This is hard work. But your kids are dependent on you. What an illustration too of how dependent our children on us that for nine months from conception to birth, children are totally dependent on their mothers and are totally dependent in those early years of being introduced to Jesus Christ. Guide your children with the right mind. John says, we're all in the kingdom. With the kingdom comes all the promises of the kingdom that come from God, all the persecutions as well though. 
Remind your children what I had to tell my children all the time. They would say this. You've heard me say this a hundred times probably. But they would grow up and they'd come home and from church, from church, y'all. And sometimes from school, y'all. They would say, so-and-so. And sometimes it was adults. Said I wasn't allowed to. A movie, a song, a dance, whatever it is. Because I'm a preacher's kid. And I would have to take their little faces and I'd have to say, oh no, it's bigger than that. You're God's kid. You're in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. John said, I got these persecutions with you guys because we're in the kingdom. This is not our world. We have a kingdom that supersedes this world. We have all the power then of the king of this kingdom and all the purposes of this kingdom and we are to take that on. This is helpful. This is helpful. Because our world is preaching and, and if, you're, if you're a Christian, you're gonna lean on the conservative side of things. You just are. And the conservative side is gonna say, this world, this nation needs to take personal responsibility. And we as Christians are going, what do you mean by that? Because our responsibility is bigger than personal. I'm responsible to the creator God who's the king of the universe. That changes the way I think, changes the way I act. And I can guide my kids and protect my kids, but I have to allow them to be able to be put on an island under tribulation to recognize when they're off on their own in a college dorm room or somewhere else in the work world and the mom and dad's no longer there to put their right hand on them, there is a God in heaven who says, I got you. And I'm ultimately responsible for him. I gotta stop here. I wish I didn't. I think here in this text, you, you see here our need for Jesus. What a great revelation. We need his mercy. We need his understanding. We need his protection. We need his power. We need his direction. We need his presence. And we have it all. One last thing we need, too, by the way, I could just keep going, but here's the last thing. We need him to come back. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had. Lord, to look at this text, to really look in the eyes of your son. And may God, we, as the old hymn says, turn our eyes upon Jesus.